You've heard the famous saying, a picture is worth a thousand words. Now, I don't know if I always believe that statement is true, but as I was looking at some different pictures over the weekend, I was looking at five famous pictures from history, and I think we can get them on the screen. First one is the explosion of the Hindenburg. This has been a famous picture that's circulated throughout history. And what's interesting is in each of these pictures, you can see some of the terror in this case or some of the context. We can see it's in black and white in this photo. And it helps us understand the story a little bit behind what took place. The second picture is of Winston Churchill. As you look, this was during World War II. You can see kind of the angry and just fierce expression that was on his face. And if you know your history, if you've read any about Winston Churchill, who was a prime minister of Britain, you know that he was a fearless and intense leader during World War II. The third one is the raising of the flag at Iwo Jima. And this is a famous picture. You can see if you're in D.C., you can see different statues of this as you drive through. The fourth one is, I just looked up on Google the two old farmers that are in the photo. It's actually called the American Gothic, if people are wanting to know the real name of it. And you can tell by their background and facial expressions what that century was like. Then the last one is The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. And this is a picture of Christ with his 12 disciples, and you can see Judas preparing to betray Christ. And in all these pictures, we can see that they tell more than just what's on the page. They tell us the story of that specific time period, of that situation, and what is going on. They tell us a little bit about the characters there as well. And as we've been walking with Paul, as he's been imprisoned, wrongly accused, I might say, we've been picking up different stories And you might get to where we are right now, chapter 24, and say, why are we reading about Paul being on trial again? We've already read about this three or four different times. Paul seems to be giving the same speeches over and over again. In next week's sermon that we'll look at, he's going to give a speech very similar to what he gives in chapter 21 and 22. And the question comes up, why is there so much time given to Paul's defense in Acts? Some might call it repetitive. Some might say that it's unneeded information. Couldn't you have just said, and Paul went from Jerusalem to Rome and then finished the book? Well, I think there's some reasons why Luke spends so much time on this. And I want us to see how do these passages contribute to the rest of Scripture before we look at today's passage specifically. So I just want to spend a little bit of time on this. First of all, these passages explain how Paul was able to share the gospel in Jerusalem and in Rome. In every defense he gives, whether it's a little bit of time or a lot of time, we see Paul giving a defense of the gospel, sharing the gospel with these people. And he does this in the city of Jerusalem. He'll do it in Caesarea, and he'll eventually do it in the city of Rome as well. You might say, yes, that's true, but couldn't we just see that on a timeline? Couldn't Luke have just put a timeline at the end of our Bibles and said, hey, Paul went to Jerusalem, Caesarea, eventually he was shipwrecked and went to Rome. Well, secondly, I want us to see that these passages show us the character in the evangelism of the Apostle Paul. If you read through these sections of Scripture at length, you'll see the integrity of Paul, 
how Paul is willing to stand trial. He's going to say in today's sermon that he has a clear conscience, that he was blameless, that he was not afraid of these charges that were brought up against him. We're also going to see how he shares the gospel with other people. And that can be an encouragement to us as we share the gospel as well. Not everyone that we share the gospel with is going to be saved. Some of them might reject us. And as we look at these last few chapters, Paul experiences a lot of rejection. And so you might say, well, that's not necessarily encouraging. Well, Paul experienced a lot of success as well. So it can be encouraging that even though Paul is this great apostle, this person that we look up to, he experienced a lot of the same things that we do as well. Thirdly, I think these passages explain the context behind Paul's different letters. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon. All these letters were written while Paul was in prison. So during this time, and they show us the conditions that he faced. They help, underst- they help us understand some of the context and the background behind Paul's letters. So they really help us plug into the rest of the New Testament. And Paul writes a lot of the New Testament letters that we study. And then lastly, we see that these passages demonstrate the heart of unbelief. We talked about unbelief in Sunday school this morning with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, with people resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. You can think, I've shared the gospel with this person. Why have they not accepted it? I've shared with them the truths of Scripture. Why do they not repent? And the truth is, the heart of it is unbelief, but different people have different reasons for why they don't believe the gospel. And so as we look at this chapter and a half here in the book of Acts, we're going to see different pictures of unbelief, different demonstrations of three groups of people, how they interact with the Apostle Paul, how he shares with them this message, and why each group doesn't Believe, And so what we want to see today in our text is that we should believe and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our big idea. That's our sermon in a nutshell. We should believe and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Meaning this, if you've never accepted Christ, if you've not known about his work on the cross, you can believe today. You don't have to be like these examples of unbelief. And if you are saved, if you're a Christian here this morning, this can be helpful and insightful for us to see why is it that others don't believe in the gospel of Christ. There's a lot from this text that we can learn and apply in our lives. We can see how Paul defends his faith. We can see how Paul interacts with these different groups that accuse him. We can see what causes others to not believe the gospel. So let's look first of all at a picture of rejection. A picture of rejection. And we'll see this primarily in the Jewish accusers that are bringing these charges up against Paul. If you're in Acts 24, we're going to start with verse 1. And it says, After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. So where did we leave off last week? Paul was in Jerusalem. He's standing trial before the Sanhedrin. This was like the Jewish religious government. The high priest is there. He orders Paul to be punched in the face, 
literally, and they have this confrontation there, and a plot, a scheme, is uncovered against Paul's life. Forty Jews said that they weren't going to eat or sleep until they had killed the Apostle Paul. I don't know about you, there's a, it would take a lot for me to not eat or sleep until I got something done. But these people have this fierce resolution to take Paul's life. And so Paul's nephew hears about this. He tells his uncle, who's in prison, that he needs to get out of town, that he needs to take care of this. The nephew ends up telling the tribune, which was over Paul's imprisonment, he was in charge of a thousand soldiers, and Paul is moved from Jerusalem to Caesarea. So he arrives in Caesarea with Felix the governor, and we'll get a little bit more information about him in a second. And it says, only five days later, the high priests and the elders come. You might say, why does Luke tell us that it's five days later? They had to come up with a whole argument and case against the Apostle Paul. Now, the legal proceedings back then are not necessarily like they are today. But if you were to tell a lawyer, hey, you only have five days to prepare your whole case against someone, they probably wouldn't take your job because that is just a very short amount of time to try to bring charges against someone. But what does it show us? They were ready to go after Paul. They did not want him to be alive. They wanted to take care of this. So they get everything together. They go to Caesarea after five days. And look who goes with them. It's not just Ananias the high priest. It's not just the elders. But it's a spokesman. This person named Tertullus or Tertullus. What does it mean that he's a spokesman? I think a better translation of this word would be an advocate or an attorney. They literally hired a prosecuting attorney to bring charges against the Apostle Paul. He was well-spoken, he knew the law, he knew rhetoric, and they hired this guy to try to convict Paul. And they have a couple goals for why they want to do this. Number one, maybe he would just be in prison by the Roman government, and I think they'd be happy with that. Or, and we'll see some hints of this in the text, they are trying to get Felix to send Paul back to Jerusalem. Hey, Felix, why don't you just send Paul back? We'll take care of this. This is just a Jewish matter. You don't need to waste your time with this. This is between us. What would happen to Paul if he went back to Jerusalem? They would have killed him. They would have ambushed him on the road back. And they're continuing to try to do this. So they go before the governor. And this was the way the cases worked. You would go before the judge, the prosecution would say if there's enough to have a case, and if there was, they would bring the defendant out. And so that's what we see in verse 2. When, they, when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. So they start talking to Felix the governor, and they said, Hey, we think you're great. You're doing such a good job. We supported all of your initiatives. You've made some great reforms here. Now, the truth is, the Jews didn't like this guy. If you read throughout history, he didn't like the Jews, and the Jews didn't like him. He, Felix was known for being a brutal governor. He was known for being very harsh towards the riots and the Jewish people. But Tertullus knows that he needs to gain the rapport of this judge. 
So he says, hey, you've made some changes. We think they're great. We think you're such an awesome governor. And Felix was very corrupt as an individual. And we'll even see that in this passage. And in verse 4, he says, but to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Again, there's that hint of, we know you really don't want to deal with this. In fact, we take him back to Jerusalem and we could just handle this ourselves. We know that that would lead to the Apostle Paul's death ultimately. So notice what they say about Paul in verse 5. For we have found this man to be a plague. How would you like that? Someone's giving you a description of someone. What do you think they're like? Well, they're a plague. They're really the worst. Another translation could be they're a pest. They're a vermin. They're a rat. doesn't sound like someone you like very much. What they're saying is that Paul was a continual annoyance for the Jews. They say that he's one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. Now, that is somewhat true. We've seen Paul on his missionary journeys. He'll preach the gospel. Someone will get upset, and there's usually some kind of riot or uprising that happens. But that's not really Paul's fault. That is the heart of the people who don't want to hear the message of God. It says he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He's stirring all this up. Why did he say the Nazarenes? Well, it's another derogatory term, really, for Christianity. Where was Jesus from? He was from Nazareth. And so he was the ringleader of these people. Whenever I was subbing, right, when I've been a teacher at different schools, and I saw some kids that were getting in trouble, three or four or five boys usually that were in some kind of trouble, I'd always look for the ringleader, the one who seems to be stirring everything up. If you know kids, you know that it may not be the loudest one. It may not be the one that's actually doing what they're getting in trouble for. But a lot of times there's one hidden in the background somewhere that is the ringleader. You got to kind of watch for them. So they're saying this Paul, he's really behind what's going on in this Christian movement. In verse 6, they get very specific. They said he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Now that's a lie for two reasons. One, he wasn't profaning the temple. He just brought some Gentiles into the temple. Number two, they didn't seize Paul. Remember this, all the way back to Acts 21. They didn't seize Paul. There was an angry mob that chased Paul out of the temple, and the Romans had to get involved and arrest Paul, and eventually they got Paul from the Romans. Well, the Romans always had custody of Paul. Now, if you'll notice in your Bibles, for a lot of our Bibles, there is no verse 7. You read verse 6, you'll see that there is no verse 7. And in some of your Bibles, there may be. It depends on what translation you use. And you might ask the question, where did it go? Why is it not there? Well, this is just a translation difference. Some translations will have verse 7. Some translations won't. And it's because of the manuscripts they were using. A lot of the manuscripts and some of the translations that don't have verse 7, are using older manuscripts and manuscripts that really don't have that verse listed there, at least that phrase. So some of the Bibles who do have verse 7 are using some newer manuscripts and they do have that verse there. Whatever the case is, whether it's supposed to be there, whether it's not supposed to be there, I do think that this is what the Jews said. I think the Jews said something like what is in verse 7 in your Bibles. I'll just mention this as well, not to spend too much time on this, But the chapter divisions and the verses 
weren't in the original manuscripts. If you were to look at one of those older Greek manuscripts, it's literally just all words, one after another, combined into this big blob of paragraph. They didn't add those until many, many years later when they had the chapters and the verses, and it's easier for us to understand it that way. So that's why there's no verse 7 there in some of our Bibles. What verse 7 says, if your Bible has this, is that the Romans had taken custody of Paul from them. This Claudius Lysias had taken Paul from the Jewish people and seized him. We know that's not true either, that the Romans always had custody of Paul. It wasn't like the Jews arrested him, and then the Romans said, hey, we'll take him off your hands. The Romans always had custody of Paul. The Jews didn't get involved until chapter 22 and 23. So in verse 8, actually, yes, verse 8. By examining him yourself, we will be able to find out about everything by which we accuse him. And I love this strategy that they're using. They're saying, hey, don't take our word for it. If you examine this guy yourself, you'll see that everything we're saying is true. I've mentioned before that I'm reading on Audible, so I guess I'm listening to audiobooks about some different legal drama cases, some different courtroom dramas. And one of the things I've noticed in the opening statements is both the prosecution and the defense will say something to the jury like this. They'll say, if you just hear all the evidence, I guarantee we'll find this man guilty. Or if you hear all of our evidence and our cross-examination, I guarantee you'll say this witness or this uh, defendant is not guilty. And they're so confident in the evidence that they had. And that's what the lawyer is doing here. He's saying, look at him yourself. We know that you'll agree with us based on what you find. In verse 9, the Jews also joined this charge, affirming that these things were so. This was a public trial. There might have been other Jewish people here, but the high priest and the spokesman also brought elders with them and different Jewish people who are kind of backing them up and affirming what they're saying. Now, what I think they're really pushing for is they're just trying to get Felix to pronounce Paul guilty or give him back to the Jews. That's not what Felix does. In verse 10, And when the governor nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I, clear, I cheerfully make my defense. Now, it kind of sounds like Paul's trying to flatter the judge as well, like he's trying to say something nice to him. But if you look at what he says, he says, you've been the judge for many years over this nation. It'd be like saying if there's a president you don't like. Well, you've been the president for a long time. That's not necessarily saying you like the policies that he had while he was in office. So as Paul makes his defense, he says, you can verify that it is more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. Now, we won't spend much time on this. Some people debate, was it 12 days? If you count the days out, it's really 17. It could be that Paul didn't count the time from when he was arrested in Jerusalem to when he was in Caesarea, or possibly even before he had come to the temple that time period. Whatever the case is, Paul's talking about the fact that it was a short time period where all this took place. It's not been very long. It's 12 to 17 days total. He says, I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And in verse 12, And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. 
Paul says, I was minding my own business. I wasn't arguing with anyone. I wasn't disputing with anyone. I wasn't causing any trouble. Verse 13, neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. So he's doing the same thing. He's saying, if you really look at their charges, they can't prove these things that they're accusing me of. Verse 14, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything that is laid down by the law written in the prophets. So he's saying, I'm a Christian. I'm part of what they call the way, which is another name for Christianity. He says, I worship the same God that they do, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 15, having hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Now, this is interesting. What did Paul do that we saw in last week's sermon to try to split the jury? He brought up the resurrection. He brought up the fact that there will be a resurrection of the dead. Now, Paul also believed in the resurrection of Christ, but he's referencing here the resurrection of the dead. And there was a debate among the Pharisees and the Sadducees on whether or not there would be a resurrection of the dead. So what he's, what he's doing by saying this is he's trying to stir up tension again. He's saying the real reason I'm on trial here is because I believe in the resurrection. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees would tear each other apart because of it. In verse 16, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. He's saying I'm blameless. I have a clear conscience. There's nothing that I've done that's worth these charges that have been brought up against me. Verse 17, Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia. They ought to be here before you to make accusation should they have anything against me. What Paul's pointing out is these aren't even really who my accusers should be. These weren't the people that found me in the temple. They were Jews from Asia that had found Paul in the temple worshiping. But they weren't there, probably because the Pharisees and the high priest didn't know who these Jewish people were. Verse 20, Or let these men say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial today. So he's saying the people that are here accusing me shouldn't be my accusers. And if they are, it should just be about my trial before the Sanhedrin. And he says, all I said there was that there is a resurrection of the dead. So Paul is clearing his name. He's showing that these charges really have no base. And it brings up the question, why are the Jews so anxious to get rid of Paul? Why would 40 men take a vow that they're not going to eat or drink before they've killed Paul? What could possibly cause this? It is not just the rejection of Paul. It's the rejection of Christ. Throughout this, we see all the Jewish leaders pitted against Paul. They come five days after he's been moved to Caesarea. They hire a lawyer, which would have been very expensive. They take all these measures to try to convict Paul or even end his life. You might say, what is the point? It's not just that they hated Paul. It's that they hated Jesus as well. 
What did the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus lead them to do? It led them to put him on the cross and kill him. And even after he was resurrected, they still didn't believe that he was the Messiah. Rejection stems from a heart that hates God. This is, have you ever wondered why so many people are atheists and they believe that there cannot be a God? They're just so convinced of that. In fact, there's groups that meet on Sundays that are like, I don't even want to call them churches, but groups of atheists and they meet on Sunday. And I think, what are you worshiping? The fact that there is not a God? What causes them to be so passionate and so hateful and antagonistic towards Christians? It's the fact that they reject God. And even if they say they don't believe in him on earth, there will be a day where they stand before God in heaven and they will realize who he is and that they've spent so much of their time rejecting him. Now, the Jews believed that there was a God, but they did not accept his son, Jesus Christ, as the Messiah. As you witness to people, as you share the gospel with some people, you will see this heart of rejection permeating them. And they hate Christianity and they may be hateful towards you and what you say. You say, why is that? It's because they do not accept God for who he is. Some people don't accept God because they don't want God's control over their life. We know from scripture that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that we are accountable to God, that God has made us. He's told us how we should live, how we should operate. And people do not want God's authority in their life. So they reject that. And they reject his son, Jesus Christ. We see a hardened rejection towards God as we share the gospel with others. But like the Apostle Paul, this does not stop him from continuing to share the gospel. Even though he faces rejection, he'll still keep going. And in the next several verses, we'll see him share the gospel with Felix. And I believe Felix is a picture of exploitation. A picture of exploitation. Look with me at verse 22, and we'll read more about this governor Felix. Because up until this point, we've just heard the two sides talking to each other. We've not learned very much about Felix. But Felix, in verse 22, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case. So Felix is caught in the middle. I think we, he knows that Paul is innocent. We're going to see that throughout this text, that he really does think that Paul is innocent. But it says he has a rather accurate knowledge of the way. Another way you could translate that is that he has a more accurate knowledge of the way than even the Jews did. He knew about Christianity. It could be because of his wife, who we'll meet later. And so he knows about this Christian movement, and he puts them off, and he says, let's wait until the tribune gets back. He's been with Paul. He knows the situation, but he's really doing this to put them off. We're going to see that there is no record of the tribune ever coming. He's just trying to get out of making a decision. So in verse 23, then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So Paul is arrested, but he does have some freedom. His friends can come. They can meet his needs. They can feed him. They can give him what he needs to survive in prison. And this sets the stage 
for Paul's prison ministry. Paul will be in prison for two years. He'll have different people that come to him while he's in prison. And while he's in this imprisonment in Caesarea, he writes the book of Ephesians, the book of Philippians, Colossians, 1 Timothy, Titus, Philemon. There's so many books that he's able to write during his prison ministry here while he's in Caesarea. And we'll talk more about that in a second. That's not a bad thing necessarily that Paul is in this imprisonment. And look at what he spends his time doing in verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. So here we're introduced to his wife. Drusilla was the daughter of Herod Agrippa. She was a Jewish person, and she was probably 19 when this took place. She was 14 when she was married to Herod, or not to Herod, but to Felix. If you think that is young, get this, that wasn't her first marriage. She was married to Felix after she had already been married to another man, and she married him at 14 years old. So at this point, she's 19 years old. She's been married to this guy for five years. Felix had been married three or four times at least. And they want to hear Paul speak about Christ. Verse 25, And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. So Paul starts sharing the gospel. And as he's sharing the gospel, these themes start coming up. The first one is righteousness. It's not justice necessarily, but it's a moral rightness, doing the right thing, living a moral life. Well, if you know about the life of Felix, he was not a moral person. He had many different wives. He would take bribes, as we'll see later. He was corrupt. He was evil. He was cruel towards the Jewish people as well. He was not a righteous person. The second thing he talks about is self-control. Having your life in a self-controlled way that honors God. If you look at Felix, he didn't have self-control either. He couldn't control his desires, his emotions. And then he lastly talks about the coming judgment. That despite the fact that Felix feels like he's on top, that he's in control here on earth, he will stand before God one day who is the ultimate judge. That's an interesting paradox that Paul uses here. Felix had control over Paul's situation. Felix was the judge over Paul, but Paul reminds Felix that God is the judge over him. And whatever happens to Paul will be of little value in comparison to what happens to Felix before God. So he emphasizes these themes as he's talking to Felix. And it says he was alarmed. He was shocked by this. And here he has a point where he could repent. He could say, you know what? I am a sinner. I've sinned against God. I've not led a righteous life. So I'm going to repent of my sin and turn to Christ. But he doesn't do that. But he also doesn't totally reject Paul either. What does he do? It says he sent him away. He says, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you again. Have you ever met people like that? You've shared the gospel with them, and they don't want to say no to your face for whatever reason. They're still interested in listening to you talk. They said, well, just go away for the present moment. I'm busy right now. And come back some other time, and I'll listen to what you have to say. And he's interested in the gospel, 
but not for a relationship with Jesus Christ. Verse 26, at the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him and often conversed with him. Now you might ask, why was he hoping that Paul would give him a bribe? Paul's not a rich person by any means. Why did he come to Jerusalem? He was bringing with him a large offering from all the churches for the church in Jerusalem. What was he doing in the temple? He was making a large offering to God as part of the Nazarite vow. So whether or not Paul was actually a wealthy person was besides the fact. Felix thought that Paul had access to large amounts of money. So he says, yeah, Paul, you can come. You can talk to me. I'll listen to you share the gospel. And maybe you'll just give me a little bit of money so you can get out of prison. And he thinks that this will happen if he continues to listen to Paul. And this goes on, it says in verse 27, for two years. Paul is in prison for two years while Felix is trying to exploit him for money, material gain. And this shows us the character of Felix. He was corrupt. He took bribes. And he wasn't interested in Christianity for a relationship with Christ But he was interested in whatever power or money or fame it could bring him. So after two years, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So Felix is replaced by another governor. You might ask, why did this happen? It's because there was an uprising that happened where Felix had the Roman soldiers use brutal an unnecessary force to the point where the high priest and the Jewish leadership were able to convince the emperor Nero at the time to get rid of Felix. So he's gone, he's out of the picture, and he's succeeded by Festus. You might think, well, does Paul get out of prison? Is he able to be free now? No, it says he left him in prison to do the Jews a favor. As one final favor to the Jews, maybe to keep their support for some political gain, Felix leaves Paul in prison. And so that's why he's in prison for these two years. Many people, like Felix, may be interested in Christianity for a time. They might be interested in Christianity and hearing you talk about the gospel, but it may not be for a relationship with Jesus Christ. This happened to Jesus as well. He said, there's a lot of people following me to see my miracles. He did some pretty awesome things while he was there on earth. Some people followed Jesus for the food. He fed the 5,000 and the 4,000, and they thought maybe Jesus is the ticket to a cheap meal somehow. Some people were with Jesus for the money. Judas kept the money for Jesus. Was it with Jesus to truly follow Christ? So some people may not reject the gospel when you share it with them, but they still have unbelief because the truth is they're not interested in the gospel for the reasons you want them to be, but they're interested in it for their own gain. So Paul still shares the gospel with Felix. I think we can still share the gospel with these people, but Luke tells us about the heart of this man here. It reminds me of the parables of the soils. When the seeds are scattered, some of the ground, it just doesn't take any root in. It doesn't have any part of it that is penetrated by the seed. 
Remember what Jesus says about the ground that it takes root for a while, but it's quenched away by the cares of this world. Some people are interested in Christianity for their politics, for their advancements. But when it comes down to it, they do not stay in the Christian faith because they're so obsessed with the cares about this world. Paul's trying to tell Felix, the things of this life are not of any value to you. What's of true value is a relationship with Christ. One other thing we should think about before we move on is the Apostle Paul. This is not where he wanted to be. He's able to use it for God's glory. But does anyone think that Paul wanted to be in prison for two years? That this is how he wanted to spend his time? He had places he wanted to go. If you followed the ministry of Paul, he was an active guy. And now he's kind of chained down in this prison. Yet, God is able to use Paul as part of his plan to spread the gospel. If you read the books in the New Testament, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Timothy, what you'll see is not the apostle, you won't see the apostle Paul complaining about his circumstance, getting upset with his circumstance, being angry with God. But what he's saying is, I've learned to be content in every situation. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So he's willing to be in prison for the gospel. You know, sometimes the plan of God does not match up with the plan that we have for life. We might want to tell God, I would have done things different. I would have had a different outcome. I think my plan's better. We know that God is in control. Everything is according to his plan. And that was true for Paul. Where did Paul want to go the most? It was Rome. He wanted to get to that point. And we'll see that through his circumstances, he will eventually get there. Finally, let's look at chapter 25, the first 12 verses. We're going to finally see a picture of moralism. A picture of moralism. We're introduced to one more character. His name is Festus. He takes the place of Felix as the governor. And in verse 1 of chapter 25, it says, Now after three days... Festus had arrived in the province. He went to Jerusalem from Caesarea. So Caesar gets rid of Felix. He brings in Festus. Don't get them confused. I know they sound similar. But Festus was actually a good guy. He was known for making good decisions. He wasn't as corrupt as Felix was. And maybe all this is just in comparison to Felix who was before him because he was so corrupt. But he's a decent guy. He's a moral person. History looks back on him favorably. Verse 2, And the chief priests and principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him. So Festus goes to Jerusalem. Why did he go there? Well, if you're going to be the governor of the area, even though the capital is Caesarea, Jerusalem is really where everything is going on. This is where all the action is taking place. So very early in his time as governor, he would need to go to Jerusalem meet with the Jewish leadership, and get them on his side. So as he talks to them in verse 2, they said, hey, there's this Paul guy. We really need to do something about him. They lay their case before Festus. Now at this time, there's a new high priest. It's not Ananias, but he's not mentioned here. We know that in later history, there was Ishmael ben Fibabi. and I think that's how his name is pronounced. He takes office, and there's some divisions between the Jewish people during this time as well. So verse 3, asking a favor, 
against Paul that he be summoned to Jerusalem. So even though there's a new high priest, there's the same plot going on. They said, hey, if you just want to bring Paul back, we can just take him off your hands. You don't need to deal with this. And what was their plan? It says it right here. Because they were planning to ambush him and kill him on the way. You just send Paul back to Jerusalem and, you know, if something happens where he's ambushed and some Jews kill him, that's just too bad. But you, you don't have to deal with them anymore. And I don't think Festus knew that he would be ambushed. But in verse 4, he replied that Paul was being kept in Caesarea and he himself was intending to go there shortly. He says, I've not met this guy. I've not heard his case, but I'm going to go up there in verse 5. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about that man, let charges be brought against him. He said, you can come too and you can go to Paul with me and we can settle this matter in Caesarea. So that's what they did. It says in verse 6, after he stayed among them, not more than eight to ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. Verse 7, when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against them that he could not prove. So Luke doesn't take the time to repeat these charges. They're very similar to what we heard in chapter 24. It says there are many of them but they couldn't prove any of them before Paul and before Felix. So in verse 8, Paul argued his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. So Paul states his argument. They can't prove anything. I've not sinned against anyone. He is blameless. Verse 9, But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and be tried there on charges before me? Now, this is where we see Festus start to pander a little bit to the Jewish government, but I still don't think he realized that the Jews were going to try to ambush and kill Paul in Jerusalem. He just knew this is what they really wanted, was, to be, was for Paul to be tried in Jerusalem. And so this causes Paul to make a move. He makes a specific strategy in his case that's somewhat debated, and some people even say that this was sinful for the Apostle Paul to do. Sometimes I think when I read these commentaries, people are just trying to find anything they can to say that Paul was a bad guy. But Paul, I think, makes a good decision here in verse 10. He says, but Paul says, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. So he said, I'm under arrest by the Romans, I've done nothing wrong to the Jews, so I should be here. What does Paul know about the Jews? He knows that if he goes to Jerusalem, there's a very good chance he's not going to make it. Because what happened to him the last time he's in Jerusalem? There's an angry mob that tried to kill him. And then there's a plot against his life. So he said, I'm not going to go back there. I'm going to stay here where there's protection around me. But... He knows that Festus is in a time crunch. He wants to try to handle this situation. He says in verse 11, If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. 
So this was Paul's right as a Roman citizen. He could appeal to Caesar and have a trial before him if he thought he wasn't getting a fair trial before Festus. And you might say, why did Paul do this? Well, he knew that eventually he would end up back in Jerusalem if he didn't appeal to Caesar. So what he's trying to do is take this trial from Jerusalem to Rome. Where did Paul want to go the most? Rome. And he knew this would be his shot to get there. And so in verse 12, Festus, when he had conferred with his council, said to Caesar, you have appealed, and to Caesar, you shall go. So we see here this man, Festus, he's the last person that Paul stands trial before. And like I said, history sees him as a moral person. He sees him, they see him as a righteous guy. And I think Festus knows that Paul is innocent. What we see him doing here is doing exactly what he's supposed to do. Festus will later bring tr- Paul before Herod Agrippa, and we'll see that in next week's sermon. And he'll listen to Paul share his testimony, share the gospel with others. But from what we know, Festus never becomes a Christian. He never converts to Christianity. He never repents. And why is that? This may be more speculation. I don't want to spend too much time on this. But Festus pictures to us a moral person, a person who hadn't really done anything too corrupt, that thought he had no need for the gospel. We even see this in this case. He doesn't want to deal with the apostle Paul. And so Paul says he wants to go to Caesar, and that's where Festus would send him. We see examples of moralism as we try to share the gospel as well. If you heard people say, well, they're not a Christian, but they're a really good person. Sometimes by the world standard, that's true. We meet people who don't know the Lord that are morally good people. But that does not mean they have a relationship with Christ. That does not mean that when they get to heaven, God's going to say, you know what? Everything's good. Your good has outweighed your bad. It's all going to be fine. We know from Scripture that the only way that a person can enter heaven is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. As we consider this sermon this morning and these pictures of unbelief, you're probably wondering how what could cause such hatred against Paul and against the gospel. It's a heart that does not know God and wants to reject his word. So we want to answer two final questions this morning. First of all, do you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? You may be rejecting God, outwardly saying you're not a Christian. Maybe you're trying to use Christianity for your own gain, for what you can get out of it. Maybe you're not a bad person. Maybe you're a really good person. Has there ever been a time in your life where you've acknowledged the fact that you're a sinner, that you've done wrong before a holy God, that that sin separates you from God, and that if you do not repent of that sin and turn to Christ, you'll be separated from him forever You believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he lived a perfect life. He came to earth, even though he didn't have to, to suffer and die for sin. And if you acknowledged him as your Lord and Savior, has there been a point where you've said, I'm going to stop following my sin and I'm going to turn to Christ? This is the answer to a heart of unbelief. And secondly, for those of us who are Christians this morning, Do you trust 
the plan of God. Sometimes God's plan doesn't make sense to us, but it doesn't mean that it's not good. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't follow his plan. Paul, we know, was a faithful servant of Christ, and the plan of God took him all around the world to places he would never expect to be in. And while he was in this two years of imprisonment, he probably wondered, what am I doing here? Why am I spending this time being wrongfully accused? Does God really care? We know that God cared for Paul and that God would put Paul exactly where he wanted to be in the city of Rome to share the gospel. In the same way, trials and circumstances and unforeseen mishaps sometimes make us question the plan of God. You might say, I'm a Christian. I know God. I believe his word. I'm not actively sinning against him. Why has God brought trials and suffering in my life? Why is God making me wait for this? Why has God brought all this pain and suffering to loved ones? Why has he allowed this person to be sick? Some of the best people I've ever known, some of the best Christians, most faithful Christians, have had some of the worst suffering and diseases and affliction from the Lord. You say, how would God plan that We know that God works all things together for good. And those people who have faced that suffering and those diseases and affliction would tell you that God has been good to them and that he is continuing to work in their life. And they're some of the best testimonies of the gospel that you'll find. So consider these two questions this morning. Do you know the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you accepted him as your Lord and Savior? And then do you trust the plan of God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to study it together. We pray that as we reflect on communion this morning, you would help us to just examine our hearts. Help us to ask the questions of, do we know that we have a relationship with you? Are we submissive to your plan? We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.